Well, good morning. Let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word and to turn, or maybe for some of you to scroll, to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And as you're turning there, let me say what a joy it is to be here with you at Taylor's First Baptist Church this morning. Uh, I have had the opportunity to worship here a handful of times before. I've had many, many friends come through this church, and that was before we even moved to the upstate. And now we have even more friends at this church. And just want to thank you for uh, serving so well so many people from North Greenville University, uh, faculty, staff, and students. I hear even our president is a member here. And so you're, uh, you're taking care of everyone well. And while we're speaking of people from North Greenville who have ties to Taylor's First Baptist, do you guys like Alan McWhite okay? Is he, is he doing a decent job as interim pastor? Well, let me be clear, you can't have him. He works for me. You can't have him. No, he's, he's great, and, uh, and I'm so glad to hear so many good things, not just orchestrated like this at the beginning of a service, but to hear so many good things uh, from so many of you out in the community about the way that Alan and Ruth are serving this body. If you've turned to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, let me invite you, if you're physically able, to let's stand together in honor of God and the public reading of His Word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of them. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity that we have had to worship You these last few minutes through singing and prayer and giving. And now as we transition to this time of the service, we pray that you would help us to worship you through hearing and responding to your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
Our prayer in these next few minutes is that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would help us to rightly understand them and to apply them to our lives. And as the preacher this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Anybody here like animated Disney movies? I like to see so many grown-ups raise their hands when I ask that question because I'm a grown-up and I like animated Disney movies. My all-time favorite animated Disney movie is The Lion King. Do we have any Lion King fans in here? That's right, representing the club. I like it. One of the most memorable songs in The Lion King is Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. It's a Swahili phrase that means there are no troubles. But in the song, the two characters, Timon and Pumbaa, interpret that phrase as no worries. And it's their advice to their young friend, Simba. If you've seen the movie, you'll remember that Simba had a lot to worry about, didn't he? He was fretting about whether he was worthy to one day be king. He was worried about escaping those evil hyenas. Maybe worst of all, he was worrying about whether he had unintentionally been responsible for his father's death. Timon and Pumbaa tried to cheer Simba up by encouraging him to join them and to live a carefree life of zero responsibilities and no accountability to anybody else. Hakuna Matata, no worries. They even called it their problem-free philosophy. Do you remember that? Their problem-free philosophy. That sounds great. Who wouldn't want a problem-free philosophy? There's only one problem. As great as the movie is, and as much fun as that song is, their advice was terrible advice. It's terrible advice. They are not trustworthy people, Timon and Pumbaa. It's terrible advice. Worry is a real problem. It's a real problem. And the way to overcome worry is not to abandon all your duties, run off to some faraway land, and eat bugs with your irresponsible friends. That's not the solution to worry. There's a better solution. But before we get to the better solution, let's talk for a minute about what a problem worry is. Almost every year, a new study comes out, sometimes more than one study, that demonstrates that unchecked worry, stress, anxiety leads to all kinds of health problems, all kinds of health problems. For example, stress affects our brains. It can cause us to lose brain cells. Stress can cause us to have memory problems, especially short-term memory problems. Stress can even cause us to be more prone to certain forms of mental illness. Chronic worry is especially insidious. It tends to piggyback on almost every other type of physical or mental ailment that you can have, and it makes it worse. It exacerbates the problem. It causes other problems to become so bad that they begin to dramatically affect the quality of life 
Sometimes it can even lead to a shorter lifespan. It's true. Stress can kill you. Worry can kill you. Both Scripture and science confirm that if we allow our worries to dominate us, it's a recipe for disaster. Brothers and sisters, friends, God does not want you to be dominated by your worries. God does not want you to be dominated by your worries. Now, before we dive into this passage, I feel like there's something I need to say about this topic. There are many, many people, and in an audience this size, likely many people even in this room, who have been diagnosed with anxiety disorders which require you to regularly receive counseling. You may even be on some form or more than one form of medication to help you combat that anxiety disorder. I want to be crystal clear, that is not the type of anxiety that we're talking about today. That is very serious. It's a topic that Christians need to talk about, but it's another topic for another day. I'm not talking about, and I don't believe Scripture is talking here today, about people who suffer from anxiety disorders. Rather, what I'm talking about and what I think Scripture is talking about in this passage when it speaks to anxiety or worry or stress is what I call everyday fears. The sort of everyday battles that we have with worry and stress that if left unchecked, they will consume us. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus calls upon us to put aside our daily struggles with worry and to trust the Lord to take care of our needs. So I've titled this message, Trusting God Through Our Everyday Fears. And as we walk through the passage together, what we'll see is that there are three truths that Jesus gives us that helps us to overcome daily anxieties for the glory of God, and for our own good, for our own benefit. The first truth we see in this passage is this. It's a command from Jesus, right from the text, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious. Let's read again the first part of verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus commands us not to give in to everyday fears that can consume us. And he gives three everyday examples of the sort of things we might fret about. He mentions life. In this case, I think he means something like our well-being or our quality of life, not whether we're going to live or die, uh, but our quality of life. He mentions food, what we eat, what we drink, what we consume, He mentions clothing, what we put on our bodies. Though he doesn't mention it, I'm convinced he could have just as easily mentioned shelter. We might add that as a fourth sort of everyday fear that some people have. And I think the question for us today is, do you know someone who struggles with this sort of stuff? Do you know somebody who battles everyday fears when it comes to health, food, clothing, are you maybe one of those people who struggles with these things? 
An example, I've known many folks over the years, and you probably have too, who live in fear that they're going to be diagnosed with some terrible disease. Do you know people like that? They're just crippled with the idea that they're going to be very sick. The sort of folks who every time they get a scratchy throat, they worry immediately it might be the flu. Or the sort of people who every time they have a fever, they're afraid it may be some terrible bacterial infection or some awful virus. They're the sort of people who whenever they hear that somebody who they know has cancer or some other terminal disease, they're afraid they might be next. Do you know folks like that? Sometimes it can even be comical. My late nanny, who went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, was notorious for always having the same ailments as everybody around her, only worse. So if you said, well, nanny so-and-so has the flu. Oh, I had a rough bout of the flu lately. Nanny so-and-so, they, they've been feeling back pain. Oh, my back. My back's been killing me, baby. I mean, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, we didn't even want to talk to Nanny about morning sickness. <laughs> oh, baby, I'm struggling with the... Are you really, Nanny? Are you really struggling with the same thing? There are people who are prone to worry. It might sound weird for an audience like us to hear a command to not worry about food and clothing, but we need to remember that Jesus' audience was almost certainly far less affluent than we are, and they came from a world where it was far more common for people to worry about, are they going to have food to eat next week? Are they going to have reliable clothing? Are they going to continue to be healthy? But just because our situation is a little bit different doesn't mean that Jesus isn't speaking to us in this passage. He's speaking to us as well. You can be blessed with abundance, like most of us in this room, and still have everyday fears about these sorts of things. Do you ever fret too much over how many calories you consume? Not because you're not afraid you won't get enough, but because you're afraid you might get too many or the wrong type. It's a first world problem, but it's a real problem, isn't it? Some people are crippled by that fear. Or do you ever stress out about wearing exactly the right outfit for exactly the right occasion? I've known people who really stress out about that. It's a first world issue. But it's an everyday fear that some people have. You see, the reality is when it comes to worry, some of us struggle with worry over needs, but other people struggle over anxiety related to wants. And whether it's something you need or it's something you want, if you're allowing it to dominate your life, it's still the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about in this passage. So he asks a couple of leading questions to help us to diagnose our hearts when it comes to this. We see the first one at the latter part of verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look down a couple of verses later in verses 27 and 28. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Jesus is reminding us here with these diagnostic questions that life is much more than food and our bodies are much more than clothing. His message is really that we need to get our priorities straight, that we need to get our priorities straight. He also reminds us that worrying doesn't actually change anything. 
I mean, one of the things that blows me away the more and more I study the life of Christ is how eminently practical he is in his advice. Jesus is often so much more practical than, frankly, preachers and Bible teachers make him to be. He's really practical. And this is really practical advice. He says, your worry ain't going to change nothing. It's not going to change anything. We can't worry ourselves into a longer life. We can worry ourselves out of a longer life. We can't worry ourselves into a longer life. We can't worry ourselves into better food. We can't fret into a wardrobe upgrade. It can't be done. We shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't be anxious. Everyday fears may seem perfectly normal because all of us struggle with them sometimes, and some of us struggle with them all the time, but just because everyday fears seem normal doesn't mean they're good or that that's the way things are intended to be. When we allow our everyday fears to dominate our life, it's evidence of a spiritual problem. And that brings us to the second truth that we see in this passage this morning. Not only should we not be anxious, but the second truth is a reminder God is in control. Again, right from the text, God is in control. Jesus points to nature as an example of God's care for his creatures. We sometimes call this God's providence. The idea that he's in control of all things, he's especially in control of and caring for his creatures. And here we're talking about non-human creatures. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God feeds the birds. Even though they don't harvest food, they don't stow food away for the winter, he feeds the birds. Will he not care much more for those who do harvest and who do stow their food away? Now, most of us in this room probably don't harvest our own crops. We probably don't stow many things away for the winter. We need to remember that Jesus is talking to a culture that was far more familiar than many of us with agricultural life. Their lives were built around the rhythm of sowing and reaping and storing and waiting until the next year to begin it all again. And so if Jesus were here today and he were giving a similar sort of illustration, this might be what he would say. Look at those birds, people. They don't go to Kroger. They don't fill their fridge. They don't stock up their pantry. They don't even go out to eat. They definitely don't go to Chick-fil-A. That would be weird. They're birds. Yet, God feeds them. Isn't he going to take that much more care of you who does do those things. You do go to Kroger. You do fill up the pantry. You do store some things away from winter at least, and you definitely go to Chick-fil-A, but not on Sundays. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? And then in verses 28 and 30, he continues with another illustration. Consider the lilies of the field. 
how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Wild flowers in a field are more beautiful than the finest garments of Israel's wealthiest king. Yet even those flowers are going to die. And even that field is going to be cut. And all that dead grass and those dead flowers are going to be fuel for the fire. Christians, if God provides in this way for those fields, will he not also provide for us who are created in his image? Did you catch what Jesus says about warriors at the end of verse 30, what he calls those who are consumed by their everyday fears? O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Brothers and sisters, the root of everyday fear is not putting our faith in the God who created us and cares us, cares for our everyday needs. Unchecked worry is sinful. Because unchecked worry is evidence that we are not trusting God like He would have us to. Jesus confirms this when we look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He repeats the command not to worry, but he makes two further points. He digs a little bit deeper. First, he says it's the Gentiles who are the ones who have everyday fears. Remember that Jesus is a Jew. His audience is primarily, probably even exclusively, Jewish people who are listening to him. And he says that it's the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the folks who almost all of them right now worship false gods, they're the ones who worry about this sort of thing. You ought not to. By comparing his Jewish audience to the Gentiles, he's arguing that like the Gentiles, they might be evidencing a lack of faith in the one true God when they are consumed by their worries. And then he goes into this second idea. God knows everything we need already. He already knows what we need. God knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows what you need before you worry about it. God knows what we need before we ever even get to being possibly a little bit tempted to start fretting. God already knows what we need. Faith is about trust, and in this case, the remedy for everyday fears is to trust that God is in control, that He's sovereign, and that He will provide what we need. God's in control, so we don't have to be. He's on the throne, so we don't have to pretend that we are. He is sovereign, so we don't have to stress out in ways that steal our joy and distract us from Him. And that leads to the third truth that we see in this passage this morning. Not only does He command us, don't be anxious, 
Not only does he remind us that he's in control, but number three, he gives us a word of encouragement. He tells us to keep first things first. Keep first things first. In verse 33, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Does anybody here have a life verse? Anybody have a life verse, a favorite verse that you've memorized that you go to over and over again? I have a life verse. My life verse is 2 Corinthians 5.21. But for about 10 years, from the time I was 15 till the time I was 25, Matthew 6.33 was my life verse. It was one of the first verses I memorized that wasn't John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13 or something like that, Genesis 1.1. And, uh, and I love this verse. In fact, when we would sign high school yearbooks, I would write my name and I would sign this verse under my name. It's a really precious promise. What is he saying here? He's reminding us to keep things in their proper perspective. Rather than worrying about our everyday fears, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That sounds so pious, but what does he mean? After years of preaching and teaching the Bible, I'm convinced there's all kinds of phrases that sound really pious, and we nod our heads and we go, "Uh uh-huh, amen but we might would have trouble explaining what it actually means if we were pressed on it. We just know it's a good thing because Jesus said it and it sounds spiritual. So what does it really mean to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Well, the kingdom of God is a major theme in the book of Matthew. It appears over and over again. And the best way I know to simply summarize this really big idea is that the kingdom is God's rule over God's people in God's place for God's glory. Let me say that again. The kingdom is God's rule over God's people in God's place for God's glory. The kingdom has already begun in the lives of those who've trusted Him as their Lord, their King, and their Savior. And that kingdom will one day reach its culmination when Jesus returns to claim all that, his, that is His and finishes fixing everything that's been broken by sin and rebellion. To seek first the kingdom of God is to focus attention on God's rule in our lives and among us and to spread His rule to others through sharing the good news of the kingdom. And what is that good news of the kingdom? God is our holy creator. He created all things, including you and me. And He declared all things He created to be good. But in the greatest tragedy of history, the first two humans rejected His just rule over them. And they decided that their way was better than His way. And it had devastating consequences for them and for every other human who's come along since them. The consequences include alienation from each other in some ways, alienation from the Lord, ultimately physical death, and even beyond that, if nothing is done, eternal separation from and suffering for that sin and that rebellion. 
But God did not leave them without hope. This is where the good news of the kingdom comes in. The king sent his eternal son to become a man like us. He took upon himself human flesh. And unlike that first man, this man never sinned, not even once. He obeyed and loved the Father for every moment of his life. And he did it in our place. But even though he perfectly loved and obeyed the Father, he died a cruel, horrific, torturous, terrible death. He did that in our place as well. And then even though he was dead, 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 really dead as a doornail, three days later he came back to life, raised into an eternal life. He did that on our behalf now. And tied to all these great truths is the promise that every man, woman, and child who renounce their sinful ways and look to Him alone as their Lord and Savior will be forgiven of their sins and adopted into God's family as His spiritual child and be given eternal life and to begin to become the person that God created them to be and has now saved them to be. This is the good news of the kingdom. And the way we seek first the kingdom of God is to live out that good news in our lives and to share that good news with others. But what about the righteousness part? What about the righteousness part? When we seek God's righteousness, what we're desiring to see is his priorities become the priorities of our world. To echo Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, which he has prayed just a few verses before, before what we're reading now, uh, it's praying your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's righteousness is his desire to see justice and compassion and flourishing and mercy characterize every human being, every human relationship, every created institution. Now, real talk, real talk, we will not see it perfectly happen in our lifetime. Our grandchildren will not see it perfectly happen in their lifetime. His righteousness will only be perfectly embodied when Jesus comes back and he finishes what he started. It's the sort of thing that only he can do. But just because we will never see his righteousness perfectly embodied in our world doesn't mean we're not to seek after it. Because whenever we live the way that we're called to live, whenever we do the things that we are called to do, we are offering a preview now of what's to come. Glimpses of that righteous kingdom. Signposts, if you will, that point to a better way. In fact, seeking righteousness and seeking the kingdom go hand in hand. That's why Jesus has them hand in hand here. Our good works don't contribute to our salvation. They don't contribute to anyone else's salvation, but they provide a living witness to the gospel's power that complements our verbal witness to the gospel's promises. The two go hand in hand. We speak forth the gospel 
We live out the implications of the gospel, and whenever we do that, we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what does Jesus promise will happen? All these things will be added unto you. When we seek God's kingdom and righteousness, our everyday fears begin to become a little less significant in our lives. They lose the hold they have on us because we are making first things first. We're making first things first. Brothers and sisters, friends, what God is saying to us this morning is I've got this. I've got this. You keep focusing on the main thing. I've got this, and I will take care of this. You trust me. I've got this. In verse 34, Jesus wraps up with a final reminder. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, Jesus is so very practical. Don't worry about the future. You can't control it. It'll bring its own trouble when it gets here, so why expend energy fretting about it now? There's enough trouble today. There's enough to fret over today. But I've got it. And I'll have it when the future stuff comes along too. The way to handle our worries... The way to handle our everyday fears is to trust God, to seek his kingdom and righteousness, and to know in our hearts he's got it. We can trust him. He will take better care of us than we would come up with if we came up with our best ideas on our own. He's got it. As we begin to move towards closing I want to ask everybody in this room to do something. I want to ask you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. I want to ask you a question while your eyes are closed. What is your everyday fear? What's your everyday fear? Maybe there's more than one. What are you worried about? When you close your eyes at night, what keeps you awake at night with stress and with anxiety and with fretting? What are you worried about that's tempting you and troubling you and distracting you from the main thing? Maybe it's even gnawing away at your contentment in life and your joy in the Lord. While your eyes are closed, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you in the quiet of your heart, to give that fear to the Lord. Give it to him right now. Pray that God would take it. He's got it. He's got this. Pray that he would take it. And pray that he would give you, as his child, the everyday faith to trust him through these everyday fears that you are tempted to be consumed by. And while your eyes are closed, if you're here today and you have never yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity right now to do that. Friend, God created you and He loves you. Jesus Christ 
lived for you, he died for you, he was raised for you, and you can be saved from your sin today in this very place if you trust him as your Lord and Savior. If you want to take the first step of following him today by trusting him, giving your life to him, I want to invite you in the quiet of your heart to pray something like what I'm going to pray out loud right now. Dear Lord, I can't do this myself. Left to my own devices, I know that my life will end in ruin. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And so Lord, I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to adopt me as your child. I thank you that Jesus did what I could not do in his obedience, that he did what I don't have to do in his death on the cross, that he's been blessed with what's intended to me in his resurrection to eternal life. Lord, I give my life to you today, and I pray for the strength day by day to walk with you, to be a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to transition into a time of invitation and commitment. I want to invite you in these next few moments to respond however the Lord is leading you. Maybe you're here today and you want to pray with someone about your everyday fears. The pastors will be down front. They would love to pray with you. Maybe you're visiting today and the Lord's laid it upon your heart to make Taylor's First Baptist your home. I know the pastors want to talk to you about what it means to be a member of this church. Maybe you're here and a few minutes ago, you prayed that prayer of faith for the first time. Or maybe you're still wondering what it means to become a Christian. They want to talk with you about that as well. The musicians are going to lead us in a closing song. We're going to stand and sing. The pastors will be here. I'll be at the front row if you want to talk to me instead. But won't you each respond in these next few moments, however the Lord is leading you to?